0: well hello and thank you so much for joining us for our worship service today we were so disappointed
1: that we weren't able to be in person together worshiping but we pray that this time will still be enjoyable that it will still be edifying and uplifting to you as we sing and as we hear from god's word if you're new with us we'd ask that you would please text new to the number that you see on your screen right now and then if you're joining us again we would just love to hear from you as well so if you could also text your name to that same number we'd greatly appreciate it let's sing now together
0: stay the same
2: to invite us all to now join in a time of prayer together. Dear Lord, on this 4th of July weekend, we want to thank you for everything that you have given to each one of us. Lord, we also ask that you be with the leaders of our country, of our states, of our communities, of our churches. Help us, Lord, to see how to move forward together as a country. Help us to really join with each other, listening and hearts open to hearing you, Lord, and hearing where you would like us to go, Lord. Lord, I ask that you heal all of us from COVID, that you would quickly remove it and destroy it and find the medical reasons and ways that you will do that, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this world that we live in, for this country that you have given us, for each other. We know each one of us is not perfect lord but on this weekend we want to look for the best in each other and lord we thank you for our ability to do that in your name we pray amen one of the many ways that we worship our lord every single sunday is by giving back giving to him just a little bit of what he has supplied to each one of us now that we are back online only we ask that you continue to do that through our website by texting give to the number on the screen or by mailing in a check to our office here at the church. Thank you so much for everything that you have done to support your church during this time. If you are an individual who is in need of something, anything, maybe it's an ear to listen, someone to to talk with from home, maybe it is food or clothing or help with a utility bill, we as your church want to be here for you. So please reach out to us by emailing us at bscc at bscc.org. You can go to our website and find that email address there as well but we would love to either be able to help meet that need through what god has so graciously given our church or help by partnering you with someone else and speaking of partners we have a wonderful partnership with our community services league right here in blue springs they help between 200 and 250 and 300 families every single week here in blue springs with food utility assistance education Um, and employment assistance, as well as housing and utility assistance. And so we ask that you help to support them alongside of us with a food drive. We have launched that food drive this weekend, and it will be going on um, for two more weeks. You can bring donations to the office during the week, or um, you can simply email me on the website and we will find a way to pick those up from you. But please help those in our community in that way.
3: Well, hey there, BSCC. Uh, What a time to be alive. Um, Here we are back online again, and this is obviously not anyone's first preference, but we are thankful that you've decided to worship with us this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Nick, and over the course of the last two and a half years, I've had the privilege of serving as the student minister here at BSCC. And as most of you probably well know, back in February, it was announced that my wife Sarah and I will soon be transitioning to serve full-time with a ministry called Black Box International, which I will talk a little bit about uh, more here in just a moment, But I just want to begin by acknowledging that this message with you today will be my final one on staff as your student minister. I will transition out of my role at the end of this month and beginning in August, Matt Stevens, who has been hired um, to take my position as the new student minister, will begin serving here um, at the beginning of August. And I just want to say a couple things about that before we dive into the message today. The first is that you guys are going to love Matt. Um, I had a chance to spend some time with him and his family during one of their visits here, and they're just top-notch people. Uh, Matt brings a lot of experience and and love for students, and I just absolutely can't wait to see how God is going to use him to minister to the BSCC family here. Um, I just hope that you will give Matt, his wife Leslie, and their girls the same warm BSCC welcome that you gave to Sarah and I. Uh, Second, I just want to take a moment to say thank you. You know, I could probably spend about half an hour up here thanking so many of you for the love and the care uh, that you've shown me during my time here at BSCC, but because I don't want to get too emotional, I'm just going to say thank you. Um, Thank you for loving me. Thank you for growing me, for challenging me, for pushing me, for loving me like Jesus, and thank you for sending Sarah and I to continue doing the work of Jesus. Um, If you've heard me preach before, you know um, that I love Black Box. This is a very um, important ministry, very near and dear to my heart and has been for a long time. But for those of you who haven't, just a little brief snippet um, about what it is. Sarah and I will be transitioning to service. It's called Black Box International, and it's a nonprofit, Christ-centered organization whose mission is to provide holistic rehabilitation for underage boys who have once been victims of sexual exploitation and trafficking. And so in short, it's an aftercare facility for young boys who have once been enslaved in the trafficking industry. And we would love to talk with you um, more details and a little bit further about what that's going to look like for us. But right now, the ministry of Black Box actually serves as a great starting point for our topic and our message this morning. Uh, Last week, Dave kicked off our new summer series that we are calling You Asked For It. And the idea for this series came from a survey that we did a while back in which you submitted some difficult questions and topics that you would like for us to bring to the Word of God and discuss from a biblical worldview. And I'm excited for this series because we're diving into some pretty difficult uh, questions and topics, ones that I think are incredibly important to wrestle through. And today, we have a pretty big question to tackle. And so here it is the question is How can a good God let bad things happen? How can a good God let bad things happen? This is a question that people have been asking and trying to answer since the beginning of time, really. It's a question that ancient philosophers and church fathers devoted their life to wrestling through. And if we're being honest, it's a question that is always hanging around the back of our minds. It's a question that each of us has had to face and decide how to navigate. And this is a question that, you know, I certainly wrestle with. I mentioned that Black Box was a good starting point for this message because this question is one that has been tossed around my brain like clothes in a dryer. If God is good, how can he allow innocent people and children to fall victim to the atrocities of sex trafficking? How can he allow people to be taken and used at the expense of other people's selfish pleasure? And that's just one example. Uh, Others include, why does God allow cancer to exist? Why does he allow so many people to starve to death around the world? Why does he allow abusive parents? Why does he allow people to hate someone based on the color of their skin? The list goes on and on, but at the root of all of these questions is one central question. If God is good, why does he allow suffering? If God is good, why does he allow suffering? This is such a tough topic to deal with because there's so many layers and so many sub-questions that surface when you really start to dig into it. Which means that there's no easy answer. There's no simple five step process to understanding why a good God allows bad things to happen. And if I'm being honest, if we're gonna dive into this question, we have to learn to be okay with that. We have to learn to be okay with a little bit of mystery. Now, some of you hate that, but Peter Kreeft, who is a Christian philosopher and apologist, sums it up well when he says this. He says, We Americans love fast, easy answers. The devil has sold as many cheap and instant answers as McDonald's has sold hamburgers. We are impatient with mystery, especially with a capital M. And if I'm being honest, in a sense... That's what this 35-minute sermon is. It's a fast, cheap, and easy answer. But the truth is that I won't be able to answer in full today's question. I won't be able to give you all the information you need to scratch that itch. I won't be able to preach away this ever-lingering question, why does a good God allow bad things to happen? But my hope is that our discussion today will be a springboard for you. Maybe for some of you it's a springboard into a deeper discussion on this topic for the very first time. Uh, Maybe for others of you it's a springboard for diving back into this conversation that you've walked away from and maybe given up. And maybe for others of you, you're actually more qualified to be up here speaking on this topic than I am and you can help lead the church forward in addressing this issue from here. But at the end of the day... This is a question that we can't just wish away. We, we, we try. I've tried. It's easier to not think about. It's easier to ignore it and pretend like it doesn't matter. But deep down, this is a question that haunts each of us. And it's one that we must deal with at a personal level and at a corporate level. But the truth is, if we want to tackle the question of suffering, we must be okay with wading into the murky waters of mystery. You know, maybe you're like me and you don't like swimming in water that you can't see through. Wading into this question is kind of like letting your feet dangle over the edge of a boat into murky water. You don't know what's below the surface, you just know that you're not very comfortable. If we're going to dive into this question and this topic, we must be okay with a long journey and not quick answers. And dare I say, maybe even no answers. But I've got just two main points uh, that I want to make today that I hope will help you begin or continue to wrestle through this really difficult question. Uh, The ideas that I'm going to share with you today are developed in large part from this book right here. It's called Between Two Trees, um, and it's written by Dr. Shane Wood. Shane is a former professor of mine from Ozark Christian College. He actually also serves on the board of trustees with Black Box International, and he's just a phenomenal theologian and thinker. And this book isn't necessarily about suffering, but I think that it gives us a great framework for understanding the existence of suffering and really why God allows it and what his response is is to it. I would absolutely recommend this book to anyone who is looking for a solid and challenging read. Again, it's called Between Two Trees, and it's by Shane Wood. But in order to even scratch the surface of this topic today, I think that we must start back at the very beginning where it all began. I think that in order to see suffering through a biblical lens, we have to start at the very beginning of creation and understand what really happened in the Garden of Eden. And so the first point that I'd like to make today is this. What happened in Eden was worse than we thought. What happened in the Garden of Eden was actually worse than we thought. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find this beautiful account of God creating the earth and everything in it, including mankind. God creates man in his own image and places upon him inherent worth and value and dignity for no reason other than the fact that he is stamped with his image And because God is a triune being, meaning that he exists in perfect harmony and relationship with Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he knew that it was not good for man to be alone. So he made another human being, and voila, male and female, Adam and Eve. And then they live in the Garden of Eden, which God gave them authority to rule over. They had freedom to roam and enjoy and to eat and be merry and to just rule over all the creatures that God had put alongside them. There was only one caveat, and you know it, They could eat from any tree in the garden except from one, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you know the story. The seductive serpent deceived them and convinced them that the only reason that God told them not to eat from from that tree is because he was holding out on them. You know, if they just ate it, they would be like God and they would then that would be better than what they had already been given. And so what do they do? They chose to eat. God gave them the precious freedom to make their own choices, so they choose to sink their teeth into the forbidden fruit and ingest its juices. And I'm sure that they were just thrilled at the possibilities that it would bring. I'm sure that they thought they were going to be eternally satisfied. But as they swallow this fruit and, and begin, it begins to digest, something begins to change. And they are immediately overcome with shame. They realize that they're naked, and and they cover themselves, and they go into hiding, and then God comes searching for them, which, in my humble opinion, I think that's where the gospel begins. Not the virgin birth, not the ministry of Jesus, not even on the cross, but in this moment, God seeks after his people for the very first time, and he reveals something very important to us about his character, and that is that he comes after us. And when he finds them, Adam explains that they were hiding because they were naked and they felt afraid, and and when we come to this part, I think it's really important for us to read some emotion into the text here. This is a a practice that has revolutionized how I see and, and understand Scripture. So often, you know, we can read the Bible like a textbook, examining its words as a means to an end, but sometimes I think we need to sit and just feel the emotion That flows from the text. We need to be able to put ourselves in the story and be reminded that we are reading about real events with real emotions. And so in verse 11 of chapter 3, God asks Adam and Eve, he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I want you to, to hear this text from the perspective of a broken heart. It can be really easy here to view God as more of the angry parent who's scolding his kids But I think that it's actually more accurate to say that there were probably tears streaming down God's face with every word of those two questions. Why? Because he knows what they've just done. He knows what they've just done, but they don't see God's pain. Because the effects of the fruit have already begun to transform their hearts. Instead of mourning the fact that they have broken God's heart and distorted their relationship with Him, they begin to point fingers, Adam at, at Eve, Eve at the serpent, all the while ignoring God's heartbroken question in verse 13 What is this you have done? What is this you have done? And Dr. Wood explains that acquiring the knowledge of good and evil through rebellion and disobedience, like they do here, it transforms God's gift, which I believe he intended to give to them eventually. It, it, this gift of knowledge, it transforms it now into a hellish curse. And, you know, I, I think that we kind of often view the fall of mankind as follows. We, we know that Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate the fruit. Their disobedience severed the relationship that they had with God that God intended for them to have, that perfect relationship. Sin enters the world and then mankind is cursed and they're banished from the garden. That's kind of the fall in a nutshell as most of us understand it. And all of those things are true. Those are all accurate descriptions of what took place. But what I want us to consider today is that what happened here in this story might actually be even more than that. What if that was just a portion of what happened? What if what happened was more extreme than just a broken relationship? Which leads us to the question then, what actually happened in the Garden of Eden? Uh, Let's start the answer to that question with the definition of sin. When we define sin, you know, we typically do so in a way that describes sin as an indiscretion or a mistake, an error, be it intentional or unintentional, that deserves or even demands punishment from God. Uh, And Dr. Wood would say, yes, that is indeed accurate, but maybe just not complete. Uh, What if what happened in Eden was worse than just an indiscretion? worse than just getting kicked out of the garden, worse than our status shifting from innocent to guilty? And what if understanding the severity of what actually happened in Eden could help us understand the problem of suffering a little bit better? I think that in order to begin understanding the devastating effects of what took place in the Garden of Eden that day, we have to talk about the word union. It's important for us to talk about about the word union. Union is a relatively foreign concept in our Western individualistic society. You know, admittedly, prior to reading this book, union was a pretty foreign concept to me as well. But I'm learning that union is a deeply underappreciated, undervalued, and misunderstood idea. And this is actually to our disadvantage because we were created with an impulse toward union, toward connection with one another. This is weaved into the very fabric of our being. I mean, I want you to take babies as an example. Studies have shown that babies who grow up without regular touch or interaction from other people can suffer devastating consequences. One psychologist actually suggested that babies who are not held, nuzzled, and hugged enough can actually stop growing, and if the situation lasts long enough, they can even die. Being created in the image of the triune God who exists in an eternal state of union with, the, with Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, we were intentionally designed to crave and seek and long for union. It's why quarantine has been such a challenging time. And there are many definitions that we can give the word union, I think, that would help us understand. But for the sake of simplicity and for the sake of conversation today, when we talk about the word union, we're going to define it as two becoming one flesh. We're going to define the word union as two becoming one flesh. And so you may be sitting here like, okay, great, but what's with all this talk about union? I, I thought we were talking about suffering. Well, we are, and we'll make the connection here in just a moment. In the Garden of Eden, When Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they disobey God's command, that's not all that happened. They didn't just commit an indiscretion or offense against God, though that they indeed did. Dr. Wood suggests that a proper definition of sin is this. Sin is a willful union with something or someone other than God. Sin is a willful union with something or someone other than God. And so what actually happened in the Garden of Eden is that they willfully chose to become one flesh with death. Romans six twenty three says, "For the wages of sin is death." They chose union with death over their union with God. And how is this worse than going from innocent to guilty before God? Because in this moment, mankind didn't just receive a status change, we became something new, something altogether different for the skin of the fruit merged with the skin of humanity offering a union that affects not just our location like heaven or hell or or being in the garden or getting kicked out of the garden to go to the wilderness, but our entire being, a union of inversion where instead of creation, man is now interpenetrated with the tyranny of uncreation. Those are the words of Dr. Wood. So what does this have to do with a good God allowing bad things to happen? Everything. I would suggest everything. In his abundant and never-ending goodness, God created mankind and gifted us with the precious ability to make our own choices. God did not want to pre-decide for his people that they would love and obey him. I mean, moms, think about it this way. That would be like you purchasing, signing, and filling your own Mother's Day card from your children, which some of you have probably had to do before. <laughs> and sure, you know, you could do that, and you'd be guaranteed to receive a gift that had your child's name on it, but it wouldn't mean much. Why? Why? Because they didn't choose it. Every mom knows how special it is when a child chooses to create a gift and give it to them. There's something incredibly powerful about being chosen. As kids, many of us knew the joy of being chosen first in kickball, while many of us knew the pain of being chosen last. There's something incredibly powerful that happens when we are chosen. And so why does God, why does a good God allow bad things to happen I guess the most simple answer is because we chose it. And when Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit, a union with death took place that still wreaks havoc on our world today. An illustration from the book that really helped me to understand this a uh, concept actually deals with the idea of eating. is that you know, when we ingest food, there's union that takes place between the food and our bodies that is physical indeed, yet it's still more than that. The moment that the food touches our lips, synapses in our brain ignite and our taste buds assess the pleasure or displeasure of the interaction. Digestion begins and nutrients permeate as the food becomes one with our flesh. As food is consumed, a union occurs between the body and the edible so much so that attempting to break, that union does significant damage to both. You know, you could throw up the food that you ate earlier today, but let's be honest, it's not going to be the same thing you ate. If you ate a hot dog, hot dog it's not going to look the same going out as it did coming in. And, and it certainly wouldn't tempt you to consume it again, and you don't exactly feel all that great coming out of it either. Why? Because the union that took place between you and the food is not easily discarded. After the purge, the food is destroyed, and yet some of the nutrients from the food, and even uh, remnants, however small, they still are retained in your body. Why? Because the two became one flesh. The food in your body engaged in union, and neither will be the same ever again with or without each other. And so what happened in Eden is that the fruit of death began to permeate our entire being and our inclinations began to lean toward violence and death and destruction. And that's because our union with death, it permeates heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a reason that Jesus compels us to love God with all of those areas, with all of those parts of our being because they are permeated with death and he desires so deeply to redeem them. And now, when we understand sin, death, and suffering in this light kind of changes things a little. And I want to suggest today that maybe we ought to be a little bit more introspective when it comes to the question of suffering. I would like to suggest today that rather than always asking the question, why does God allow suffering? I think we, th- we should be willing to shift our focus inward and begin asking ourselves, why do I allow suffering? Why do I allow suffering? Around the turn of the 20th century, British author, philosopher, and theologian G.K. Chesterton was asked to submit an essay for the London Times on the topic, What's Wrong with the World? He showed incredible humility by submitting the shortest but the most to-the-point essay of them all, and to answer the question, What's Wrong with the World? This is what he wrote. He said, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am. I am. I believe that in order to revolutionize our communities, our nation, and our world, we must have enough humility to look inward and ask incredibly challenging questions of ourselves like, how do I contribute to the suffering of others? Even if it's unintentional, how do I contribute to the suffering of others? And, you know, if you ask that question and you think to yourself, you know, I don't really think there's anything I do that directly uh, contributes to the suffering of others. Then ask yourself, how does my inaction affect those who are suffering? And then third, what can I do today to actively engage in the reconciling ministry of Jesus? Because ultimately in Christ, we are called to be agents of change, ministers of reconciliation, and ambassadors for the gospel. This is exactly what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us what? The message of reconciliation. We are therefore what? Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, through you and me. As God's church, we lead the charge. We don't sit back and and wait for politicians and officials and government structures to make the first move. Those things certainly can and I would even say should play a role. But the point I'm making is that we take action and we invite the power and the presence of God into brokenness that only he can truly heal. And that healing is only possible because of the measures that he took to come after us. Now, we've established that the effects of sin were worse than we thought, but the good news of the gospel is that God's solution was better than we could imagine, and that's point two for today. Point number two is that God's solution was better than we could have imagined. The effects of Eden left God's people helpless if God himself would not intervene. This is evident in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we find story after story, person after person, page after page of the same thing. I made a chart here that can hopefully help us visualize this a little bit. Um, We see an endless cycle in the Old Testament of this, of God providing a way to himself, the people choosing to rebel from that direction. They then experience the consequences of their rebellion, and they cry out to God, and repentance, and God restores them and makes a way. And this is just the cycle that we see over and over and over. But thankfully, our God is not one who is distant and uninterested in us. He didn't just offer a way, He offered the way, the truth, and the life. And He offered Himself in the person of Jesus. And this response was logically unconventional. At the surface level, it doesn't make sense to many, but at its root, it is deeply personal and it is better than what anything was that we could have ever hoped for. So I would just want to survey three passages and offer you three of God's many responses to the consequences of our sin. I think that these three are most pertinent to our conversation for today. And so the first response is this. We chose union with death and God responded by dying. We chose union with death, and God responded by dying. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they united mankind with death. And in order to undo the effects of Adam, God became flesh, and in Christ gave himself up to pay the debt that we owed. In a sense, he paid for what was already his by becoming like us and doing what we could never do for ourselves. This is what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. Verse five, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider that as something to be taken advantage of. Rather, he made himself nothing. He became like a servant. He became a man and being found in appearance as a man, he did what he humbled himself and he became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And so get this. We willingly chose death. God's response was then to also willingly choose death. Why? Because God died to end death's power. The effects of the fruit no longer reign supreme because the supremacy now belongs to Christ. And that's what verses 9 through 11 go on to tell us there in Philippians chapter 2. So response number one is that God responded to death with death. Response number two to the consequence of sin is this. Union union with death resulted in suffering, and God's response was to suffer. Union with death resulted in suffering, and God's response was to suffer. God's response to suffering was to also suffer. In Christ, God took on the suffering of the world. And listen, this wasn't just some plan B. Okay, God didn't just send Jesus because no other plan worked out. Jesus wasn't a backup plan. Jesus was always the plan. And how do we know that? Because some 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah told us exactly what was going to happen to him. Isaiah 53 is one of the most well-known prophetic prophetic passages of Scripture that we have because of the accuracy in which it describes what took place on the cross. And so I just want to highlight a few descriptions from verses 1 through 10 in Isaiah 53. Starting in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Down to verse 4, he says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Down even further to verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Down then to verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and what? Cause him to suffer and though the lord makes his life an offering for sin he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will the and the will of the lord will prosper in his hand it was the lord's will to cause him to suffer why because he was always the solution to the consequence of sin God suffered so that one day in his presence we would suffer no more. The entire premise of this book that I've been referencing throughout this message is that the tree that Christ died on undid the effects of the, of the tree of, in the Garden of Eden so that someday we may sit under God's tree of life and be sheltered in his presence. And what an incredible promise that is. The third then and final response of God that I want to share this morning to the consequences of sin is this. We chose haste in the garden, and God responds with patience. Now, what do I mean when I say we chose haste? Well, it was pointed out to me one time that God didn't tell Adam and Eve that they could never have the fruit on that tree. What he did say was that they couldn't have it on their terms, that that he said just don't take it by yourself. I personally believe that God created that tree because he eventually intended to give them the fruit that was on it. And I think Satan knew that and was jealous because God was going to supply them with something that Satan so deeply desired to have. And so Satan did what he does best. He lied. He manipulated. He deceived them into disobedience that led to their downfall and their death. And that's what he wants to do to each of us as well. But the point is that the enemy convinced Adam and Eve to eat the fruit on their terms, not God's. Thus, they chose haste. They chose to do it before the proper time. Now, some would ask, you know, well, why would God make them wait? Why wouldn't he just give give it to them? And my response to that question would be, I don't know. I I don't know. But what I do know is the truth we find in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Peter says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The haste of Adam resulted in death, but God's patience results in our salvation. His heart is for all to know Him and find hope and healing and wholeness and salvation in Him. He is patient with us. Psalm 103 says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. It is part of His character. It is part of who He is. And he desires nothing more than to free you from the captivity and chains of death so that you may not only spend eternity with him, but also walk in freedom right now. This isn't a freedom that will come someday when the role is called up yonder. This is a kingdom freedom that he is offering you right now in this moment. Paul uses baptism to illustrate this freedom from sin and its effect in Romans chapter 6. Listen to how he describes this. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may have a new life. Now get this, verse 5. For if we have been united with him, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Did you see the word that he used here in verse 5? United. United. The only way to break the union with death that sin has created is to be united with Christ. The only thing that can overcome the effect of Adam's union with death is union with Christ. It is giving ourselves completely over to Him, dying alongside Him, and being raised with Him. That is the purpose of baptism, to physically express a spiritual commitment to that truth. And if you feel like God is calling you, to respond and make a decision to follow Him. If you're ready to unite your life with Him and break the union with death that sin has caused in your life, I encourage you to text RESPONSE to the number that's going to be on the screen. And Minister will get in touch with you and tell you and talk to you about what this can look like in your life. I want to conclude um, with just some thoughts on application and talking about what our conversation today is can look like practically in your life. I think that the question in a conversation like this naturally turns to, okay, so, so where do we go from here? How do I apply today's conversation in a practical way? And so I want to finish by offering two suggestions that I've actually already previously mentioned that I just want to touch again. The first is I think that we need to be more introspective. I think that we need to be a little bit more introspective. I mentioned this earlier, and I'm going to say it again. I think that rather than always asking the question, why does God allow suffering, we ought to spend time focusing inward and asking ourselves, why do I allow suffering? Ask the difficult questions we talked about earlier. How do I contribute to the suffering of others, whether that's intentional or unintentional? Maybe, again, you don't think you do. So ask yourself, how does my inaction affect those who are suffering? And then third, what can I do today to actively engage in the reconciling ministry of Jesus? Which leads me to the second point of application, which comes directly from uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Paul says, to offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness. He says to offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness. As people who have experienced the compassion, love, and patience of God, we should be the first to step up and lead the charge for what is true, what is right, what is godly, and what is noble. That's what it means to be an instrument of righteousness. As people who have been reconciled, healed, and loved, we should be the first ones willing to enter into the darkness of the world. We shouldn't build up our white picket fences and separate ourselves from the darkness. We should enter into it because that's what Jesus did. He entered into the brokenness, and he transformed it. And as his disciples, we should follow his lead and love like he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't going to look the exact same for everyone. God has gifted us each with different abilities and skills and passions, but that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Together with the gifts that God has given us and with the spirit that is living in us, we can work together to be agents of transformation in our communities and in the world. For Sarah and I, this looks like devoting our lives to anti-trafficking ministry. Uh, For others of you, it may look like getting involved in a local homeless ministry. Uh, It may look like getting involved in an organization that works toward racial reconciliation here in our community and in the Kansas City area. It may look like working to create and establish a fully functioning special needs ministry here at BSCC to include a very isolated and neglected people by the church. I don't know what it is for you, but I can tell you this, the church is God's plan to reach a very broken, hurting, and lost world. So let's pray and let's get to work. Father, we thank you so much for your response to our choice of suffering. You did not leave us to suffer on our own. You did not leave us to die on our own. And you are so incredibly patient with us. And you desire for each and every single one of us to come to a knowledge of the truth of who you are. And to find salvation and hope and wholeness in you. And so I pray, God, that you will speak into the lives of every single person who is listening today. God, that you will continue to transform our hearts, that you will help us to be introspective and and see in what areas we are the problem, what areas we need to change and be healed and grow. We just pray for for guidance and wisdom from your Spirit to lead us, God, so that we may be ministers of reconciliation in a very lost, broken, and hurting world. We love you, God, we thank you so much for the hope and the healing that we have in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
1: as we close our time together, we want to invite you into a time of communion. We know that the good news is that though we sinned and fell away from God, though we've all fallen short of his glory, that he sent his provision through Jesus so that we could all be saved. And that's what we remember through communion. You may not have the supplies to take communion at home, but that's okay, because communion is ultimately with the spirit. And so we still wanna invite you into a time of meditation in, in his presence. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We thank you so much for the fact that you loved us so much that your love has never failed us, that you sent Jesus to die for us. Lord, we thank you that though we had broken the bond between us, Lord, you've made that whole again. Lord, you've made us holy, you've set us apart. You made us blameless in your sight because of Jesus, not because of us, but because of Jesus. Lord, to him, we give all the glory. Lord, to him, we remember. And we thank you for the fact that you cared about us enough to send your, to send your son to die for us. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.